This week, we talked to Dwight Stephen Bonecki, director of the incredible documentary Searching for Skylab. Yep, today we're kickstarting our celebrations for the 50th anniversary of Emily's all-time favorite space program, Skylab. Do you have any memories of Skylab? Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, enjoy episode 141 of the Space and Things podcast. Listening to the Space and Things podcast with Emily Carty and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing great. For the next couple of weeks, we're talking about one of my favorite subjects. So I'm I'm actually uh, really excited and I'm ready to get on with the shows. Let's do it. Let's crack on with episode 141 of our podcast. Right. It's here. It's finally here. The 50th anniversary of Skylab. Yes. Skylab was the United States' first space station. It was launched by NASA on May 14, 1973. The station was a modified uh, Saturn 4B, a uh, third stage booster of the Saturn V rocket, and was the final launch of any kind of Saturn V rocket, which took humans to the moon for the first time. The station was launched uh, without a crew. The launch did not go as planned, unfortunately. More on that later during this episode. But the station was occupied for around nine months in total by three different crews. The station had uh, scientific, medical, and uh, Earth observation and solar objectives. Uh, During its time in space, over 2,000 hours of uh, technological and medical experiments were performed on it. Over 100,000 images of the sun were taken via the Apollo Telescope Mount Experiments uh, package. And I want to say nearly 50,000 photos were taken by the Earth uh, Resources uh, packages on board Skylab. So a ton of work was accomplished during these missions. Skylab remains the only sovereign uh, United States space station. The International Space Station, of course, is a sort of a conglomerate of a lot of different space stations from different countries. So Skylab is really the only U.S. exclusive space station to this day, which is incredible. And it also carried a large number of student experiments as well. It really ushered in the whole era of, okay, we're going to send experiments by regular people to space and figure out what happens. Today, we talk to Dwight Stephen Benecki, who directed the 2019 documentary Searching for Skylab. Here's the synopsis of that movie. The first American space station, Skylab, is found in pieces scattered in Western Australia. Yet this picture of destruction is deceiving putting the pieces of Skylab back together and retracing the station's history back to its very conception reveals a key program of human space exploration. Using remastered, long-lost, and in some cases never-seen archive footage, integrated with eyewitness accounts of the astronauts, engineers, and their families, 
The movie presents a very factual account of the most glorious times of NASA while keeping a very human view of the demands placed on the NASA and contractor staff. The story of Skylab is a remarkable part of human exploration history without which the world as we know it wouldn't be possible today. Dwight is also the award-winning author of Live TV from the Moon, Live TV from Orbit, and editor of Skylab 1 and 2, the NASA Mission Reports, Skylab 3, the NASA Mission Reports, and Skylab 4, the NASA Mission Reports. As a result, Dwight's returned to filmmaking armed with this in-depth knowledge of Skylab, and he is the perfect person to direct such a documentary. So let's crack on with this week's interview and start our 50th anniversary celebration of Skylab. Houston. This is Space and Things Base here. It's time to crack on. Dwight, thank you so much for joining us to start our Skylab 50th anniversary celebration. So let's start with a little bit about you. Uh, how was it that you came to be interested in spaceflight and Skylab in particular? Oh, that's a long, long story. I mean, I, I can remember as far back as uh, Apollo 17, watching it live on television. Uh, in Australia, and uh, December for us is uh, the middle of summer. And, uh, you know, I was watching it on the television set, and then my father took me outside, and, and it was a near full moon, and he pointed at the moon, and he said, can you see the astronauts on there? Okay. And I didn't want to disappoint him, and I said, yeah, yeah sure I can. You know, couldn't see a thing, just the moon. And then came back in, and I was I remember even as three and a half years old, I was thinking, wow, I'm watching them on the television, and they're walking up on the moon. That is fantastic. And that stayed with me as uh, as a kid. I love watching Lost in Space and Star Trek and Land of the Giants and all that science fiction stuff. And then, of course, uh, Star Wars came along and blew my mind away as far as space and everything. Uh, of course, it was science fiction, but I remember vividly as an eight-year-old walking out of the cinema thinking, I want to do this as a career. And that stayed with me. And, of course, at the same time, there were the uh, shuttle ALT landing tests uh, that I remember watching on news reports in 77. And then, of course, 1979, as a 10-year-old, I was watching Skylab deorbit. And I remember vividly the night before thinking, oh, please, God, don't let that thing hit our house. And I remember waking <laughs> up the next morning thankful that it didn't hit and extremely jealous of the fellow Tom Stan Thornton in uh, – in Western Australia, who was 14 years old at the time, found pieces of Skylab, flew out to uh, to the US and got $10,000 reward. And I remember thinking, imagine all the Lego I could get with that $10,000. <laughs> and that that is how I got introduced to Skylab. Uh, there was a poster up on the uh, on the wall of our principal's office that said Skylab is falling, and, and the student had written all the details about what it had done and so forth. And that was my very first introduction to it. And uh, that was basically it until 1989, when in the US I was watching the Apollo 11 as it happened, uh, EVA uh, or moonwalk. Uh, and then my passion for space started getting fired up again. And I ended up researching a book called Live TV from the Moon. And I would speak to Stan Labar, who was the manager of the Westinghouse Lunar Camera Division. And we telephoned three times a week, maybe for hours on end. And every single telephone call, he would say to me, Apollo, we were really good with Apollo television, but we've got really good with Skylab. And I remember thinking, you've got to be joking me. The thing that crashed in, in my country's backyard, that was <laughs> where you got really good. What? And I associated Skylab as a failure. 
And uh, through talking to him, uh, I got interested in the project. I read David Hitt's book, David Shaler's book, got very interested in it and uh, managed in the good old days when eBay weren't as strictly controlled as they are now. Somebody sold their personal collection of JSC video recordings on VHS of pretty much all the Skylab downlink footage. And in doing the second book, Live TV from Orbit, I started uh, arranging these videos in chronological order. And while I was watching them, I was thinking to myself, why was I not able to watch that when I was a kid? I would have understood physics so much better. Yeah. Because yeah, astronauts in zero gravity explaining things like orbital mechanics and so forth. Oh, even today, I watch it. My favorite clip, my favorite clip of the entire Skylab program is uh, Bill Pogue with three spheres as they're doing an orbital adjustment, showing how the relative movement occurs in, in orbital mechanics. And to this day, I'm like, why did I not see that as a kid? And that's that's where my my passion started for Skylab. In 2019, the movie Searching for Skylab was released, and you were the director. So now we know how you discovered Skylab. How did it come to be that you ended up making this movie? And what was the process of making the movie like? <laughs> Emily is partly uh, to blame for this. She started a group called Space Hipsters. And what I would do prior to even coming up with the idea of making a movie I would on anniversaries just show snippets of all the, the, you know, the video footage I had of launches or EVA or experiment, whatever. And somebody, and I, I swear to you, I have tried to track down who wrote this to me that said, Dwight, you've got all this footage. Why don't you make a movie out of it? And I swear to you, I never had the intention to make a movie. It was this person that made me start to think, hmm, that might be a good idea having no idea what I was getting myself into. I just jumped, jumped head first into a pool that uh, had very little water in it. <laughs> that's how it came about. Ed Gibson was one of the very first astronauts that I approached with the idea. And that was in around about 2016. And I just, I put together a little uh, sort of template promo. And I said, Ed, this is what I'm looking at. Um, how do you feel about it? And he said, are you doing this yourself? And I said, yes. And he said, look, I'm right behind you. Let me know what we need. And I thought, oh, yeah, at least we've got one astronaut on board. Amazing. The constellations formed together to allow us to make this thing by interviewing pretty much every surviving astronaut with the exception of Jerry Carr. And again, constellations formed, allowed me to, uh, to be in contact with a TV company that had footage of him conducting in the interview. And they leased it to us for for next to nothing. And I'm so appreciative of everybody who who went out on a limb for us. It, me having the the label of director makes it look like it was my project. And yes, I sat here and I edited together and came up with the idea. But a lot of people worked behind the the scenes to to get it done. Let's move on to the main event, Skylab itself. Give us a, a, a brief synopsis of the origin of Skylab. How did it come to exist? Uh, Skylab is the result of head management and NASA trying to uh, figure out how they could prolong the life of Apollo hardware after the Apollo missions uh, had finished. That would allow all the engineering and all the ideas and all the hardware to keep being used uh, further along the line after the last Apollo mission had landed on the moon. Uh, there were other ideas like a flyby of Venus and, and um, actually the, the ATM, the Apollo telescope mount on Skylab was originally a separate entity to Skylab. It was a separate project, part of the AAP. And uh, 
they merged the two together. Uh, ASTP, I believe as well, was a, an AAP sort of offshoot. Uh, but as, as a solid um, piece from from a, um, Apollo Applications Project, Skylab is the one remaining event that happened as a direct result of it. Skylab was launched on May 14th, 1973 on a modified Saturn V rocket. And it was the final launch of the Saturn V uh, for the first uh, 60 seconds or so. The launch looked like it was going fine, but things quickly went south. So what happened and, and how close were we to losing Skylab for good? Extremely close. Extremely close. <laughs> it wasn't just the micrometeoroid shield that was ripped off. There was the skirt of the um, between the stages that didn't separate properly. And had that not have come off properly, that could have that could have been a wonderful explosion for all the world to see. Uh, yeah, when you read this, you just get goosebumps thinking $2.2 billion were resting on this space program uh, called Skylab. And had that not worked, that would have been a very dire situation for NASA. I can't imagine the pressure the crew of Pete Conrad, Joe Kerwin and Paul Whites had when they flew up, knowing full well that the, the whole project rested on their shoulders on being able to fix this. NASA management came up within 10 days of a with a solution on how to fix the problem. Uh, what had happened is the micrometeoroid shield was ripped off, causing thermal problems with Skylab. It wasn't shielded from the sun, so it was overheating. And what they were ending uh, doing prior to the first man crew launching was rotating Skylab in orbit to try and sort of barbecue roll it without without throwing it out of orbit. And what this was doing was using up the um, the, the propellant to, to actually stabilize Skylab when it was in a normal configuration. It was dire. It was seriously dire. They had the experiments on board. They had photographic equipment, the food. Everything was in danger of uh, being destroyed. What they ended up doing was developing a parasol system that would be deployed through the scientific airlock. And that thing would open up like an umbrella and be brought back down just over the surface of Skylab so it would be protected from, from the solar radiation. Also protecting it from the micrometeoroids that could possibly damage the spacecraft. Uh, there are photos that the crew took when they did the first flyby or fly around of, of Skylab, and you can see how much damage had already happened just in those 10 days or 11 days. Am I misremembering this, that the Ministry of Defence also supplied some photographs? Uh, am I am I yeah. right there? Uh, is that right? You or are right? absolutely correct. They okay. were they were secret. They're still classified. Um, we asked the astronauts about them. They did not see them. They, they knew about them. They never saw them, according to Joe Kerwin, who was on the first crew. These were spy satellite photographs that showed the damage. Um, so the engineers already had a pretty good idea of what was happening. Now, until the SL2 crew flew around Skylab, that's where they started the television downlink, and that's where they saw close up what was uh, what was really going on as far as the damage was concerned. So, obviously, the, the, that... SL2, the, the first crewed mission, was supposed to fly the very next day after the, the the station launch, and it didn't. Ten days later, they postponed it just ten days to get a plan together. Let's talk about how they made that plan. Obviously, you spoke about the, the Paracel, but how chaotic were those ten days, and how many people were involved? How many heroes have we got within these ten days? I don't expect you to name them all, but 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 give an idea of the scope of that that mission to try and save Sky, Skylab. Okay, well, actually, to to uh, defend everybody at NASA, it was a very focused 
a goal to fix Skylab. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were testing it in the neutral buoyancy facility in Huntsville. The SL2 crew were in the neutral buoyancy facility testing out all, all the procedures. Uh, there's film of this uh, happening. They, they filmed everything, which was uh, advantageous for us for the film. Absolutely. Joe was telling us that uh, Deke actually intervened when the crew were, were underwater and said, get out, we need you to, to relax. He got them uh, pizza and beer against flight doctor orders <laughs> and uh, insisted that the backup crew do all the testing. And and the Conrad crew were very appreciative of, of being given a, a break because they, they had a whole heap of work coming uh, their way when they were really up there. Uh, Rusty Swikert and Don Lind, I think, were the ones in the in the neutral buoyancy facility doing all the testing. Uh, when you listen to the EVA where they're trying to free the solar panel and when they're um, extending the parasol, Rusty is a key element there. He is the Capcom most of the time because he was the one that was in the um, in the in the pool doing all the tests for them. So he knew exactly what they were going through up there. Uh, I also should mention Jack Kinsler, who is the fellow who came up with the idea of the parasol. And uh, he just got the idea while he was sitting in his couch, according to his <laughs> wife, uh, Sylvia, who told us he was just sitting there and he just went looking at a model in in, uh, in his work area and he saw that there was the, the scientific airlock and he went, I have an idea how to save Skylab. And that's how the parasol came about. Did NASA learn any lessons from the launch of Skylab and the efforts to try and save the space station? I think David Hitt put it the best when he said uh, prior to Skylab, nothing like this had ever been dealt with before. There was no contingency for doing spacewalks to repair a spacecraft. Nothing like that had happened. And Skylab put it on the map as far as mission planning goes that you had to have a backup. Afterwards, it's it's now a key element of every single space flight. What do you do when things go wrong? They're not saying that prior to Skylab, they didn't have uh, backup plans. But this is where it really stared them right in the face, where they had to make sure they had uh, the, the plans and, and the testing done in order to deal with problems should they arise. Yeah, I guess that can get us onto a long discussion about the space shuttle if we really want to, and the fact that that enabled fixing things if they'd gone wrong, like Hubble and things like that. So uh, that could that could certainly take us there. I want to go back to to the origins of Spy Skylab a little bit here, and obviously it was the first time that anyone was attempting a long duration mission uh, i know 23 days i think had been done by the by the russians at that point maybe or 21 days um, but obviously the skylab the plan was a few weeks on the first one a couple of months on the next one and then even longer on the third mission so there was definitely plans for these long duration missions and i'm imagining that there was some concerns about how they might deal with that was there any uh, anything in place to help test astronauts being in isolation or being in a in, in an environment like Skylab for long periods of time? Yes, the most uh, famous of the ground tests was SMEAT, Skylab Medical Experiments and Altitude Test, which was conducted by Crippen, Thornton and Bobco. Uh, they were locked in a sealed environment simulating Skylab for 56 days and uh, studies were done on them to determine how to plan for the Skylab missions. This proved extremely beneficial for NASA to have this information. There were several uh, details uh, that were applied from what they learned on SMEET into, into Skylab. You're asking me too much if you ask, ask me to rattle them off the top of my head. I, I cannot remember. I, I believe it had something to do with personal hygiene. 
and possibly uh, uh, the showering or something. I can't. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> I know uh, Thornton set fire to a bike. The, the <laughs> bicycle ergometer. I think I'm saying that right. I always stumble over that word. I know he acts. He set fire to a bike. Yeah, <laughs> and he pissed Crippen. Excuse my language. We gotta censor that. He got Crippen mad because of the bike. I think. I don't know. I remember that because I went to a panel years ago and they were talking about it and I just about died laughing because Thornton was such a troll. Like he would just, he would break stuff just to say he, just to be like, yeah, I can break it. You know, (laughs) there's the, the, the legendary Thornton's revenge, which was the, uh, the treadmill, wasn't it? Yeah. So yeah, he he was uh, very, quite well known within the Skylab circles. Yeah. So, is there any favorite footage that didn't make it to the movie, and and what is your all-time favorite film or, or video clip from Skylab? Footage that didn't make it, pretty much 90% of it. <laughs> I watch every bit of it, and I just go, oh, I wish I could have put it in there. Believe it or not, they filmed themselves going to the bathroom on Skylab for an engineering evaluation, and I thought... I'm dishonoring the guys if I put it in there, but it's important because that set as well the groundwork for for what happened on the shuttle and so forth. And uh, I just thought, no, you know, the the guys have been through enough. They don't, they don't need me to put that on on the film. I would have loved to have um, added the EVA for the twin pole sunshade, the second one that came about, and we actually did cop a bit of grief from the people at Huntsville because they were elemental in doing the training for that, and they said, "Why did you show it?" I <laughs> budget. My favourite clip is the Bill Pogue clip. When when I'm watching the film in an audience, they love the EVA with Pete Conrad and Joe Kerwin because. <laughs> Those two, both of them don't want to admit they're wrong, and both of them have to get the job done. And uh, we 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 find that the most beautiful quote is uh, Joe Cohen when he goes, "That might actually work." I reluctantly have to confess, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, "Oh man!" And Paul White was there with the video camera; just uh, he must have been chuckling to himself. <laughs> there is the unfair claim that the final mission uh, staged a mutiny, and that one thing that we have uh, uncovered and it's not just me it's david hit it's emily it's uh people all over the net digging in to the records and discovering that there is no evidence of this ever happening we we interviewed ed and he's just point blank said there was no mutiny nothing nothing in in the records shows that that happened now the one thing that did happen bill pogue got sick on a launch and they decided not to inform the ground immediately. And they got a uh, reprimand from Al Shepard on the air. Now, that tape was difficult to find. That took me five years of uh, digging through collections, private collections and so forth. And then the 11th hour, uh, Emily, you probably remember this. We were about to send all the Blu-rays out. And I'm going, wait, 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 wait. I got the file sent over from the National Archives in the U.S., and at that point, I had no idea whether this tape was the one. You know, and I had the transcripts open, uh, sitting right where I am now, headphones on, and the transcripts going through. And I, I you would have to sort of do a, a listen to the file, do a keyword search. Where am I in the mission timeline? And I could see the needle on the file coming closer to the end. I'm going, oh, don't tell me I've just spent $100 getting this file. And I said, cuts out two seconds before they speak. And then right at the end, I hear Bruce McCandless go, 
to the words of um, uh, crew, are you all around the uh, the microphone? We have somebody who wants to speak to you. And I'm looking at that, and that's right before the reprimand. I'm like, I got it. I got it. And I was thinking to myself, going, wow, this has not been heard in, at that time, 44 years. And I thought this has to go in. And uh, out of courtesy, I wrote to Ed Gibson and I said, look, I found it. Have a listen. I think it needs to be in there to, to justify what you, you all did. And he, he was okay with it. So we put it in. I will say this much. The legend seemed to be greater than what I actually heard on the tape. You know, I, I was expecting him to like be ripping their heads off. And he's actually joking. He says, he chuckles and says, look, if that's the only mistake you make, this is going to be the best mission ever. And I'm thinking, well, okay. If you're on the receiving end of that, you don't want to hear that. But in the grand scheme of things, I think they they took it as professionals. And again, coming to the to the whole alleged mutiny, a couple of days after the alleged incident, Deke Slayton gets on the line and actually apologizes to the crew for, for giving them so much work. And I'm like, if they were really mutinous, I doubt very much NASA would be calling them up on the on the radio and going, thank you for the mission. I'm sorry we are lump, lumping so much work onto you. So as far as I'm concerned, that was the end of the discussion. Unfortunately, there's still uh, news outlets out there that love the clickbait and uh, continue to put that story out. Yeah, including some pretty big ones, which is dead annoying. Dead annoying. Yeah, we, dare right. not, we dare not mention their names. No, that, call them out. Call them out. The Smithsonian. <laughs> call them out. Smithsonian. They should know better. It's, like, it's crazy that they yeah. don't know better. Yeah. And it's, it's, not like, it's not like we're grasping at straws. It's like we've got the evidence. Yeah. It's like right here. Yeah. Have a look. It's right in the open. Yeah, of course, we're talking about an article in the Smithsonian Magazine, which was released in 2017 and still gets branded about and have not updated the headline or just taken the article down despite this evidence. Uh, I'm not sure how associated the magazine is with the museums and the staff we know at the museums who are absolutely wonderful people, uh, but this magazine exists and it's got their branding on, so maybe it's an oversight somewhere, but hopefully it will get sorted. Now, talking of the Smithsonian, which of course is a wonderful museum, uh, everyone should go to visit the Aerospace Museum, and at the Air and Space Museums, they have one of the Skylabs that, that you can go in, Skylab B, which was the backup one. They've got that there, and you can they've modified it so you can walk in and, and see what it was like. But and, and obviously, there's two others, one at Huntsville and one at Houston Space Center. Now, this may be a difficult question that I'm springing on you. For those people who have never been inside a Skylab or perhaps seen images, can you give a tour of Skylab? So imagine that you're docked in the, in, the, in the command module. As you come through, what would you have seen? And, and what was there for the astronauts, for the, for the three-person crew that were on board? I'm very glad you asked me that. I've had the fortune of going into the one in Huntsville and in uh, Houston. The Huntsville one is mounted vertically. So when you come in, you're at technically the bottom and you look straight up to the top of Skylab and you, you just realize while it's big it is also cramped it's a really weird experience i was lucky to be permitted to actually go into the thing and not just look through the glass window uh, and there's a little story with that when we were there jack was was our guest and uh all, all the uh volunteers for the for the ussrc were, were telling us you know please don't touch anything don't touch anything and jack walks straight over to the shower 
pulls the shower up and the person behind me, the, the one who was uh, looking after him, just goes, no, 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 you can't, you can't. And I just took him and I said, this is history. And he goes, oh, whatever. And then Jack <laughs> pulls the shower up and mimics the photo he did 45 years <laughs> oh, earlier. Wow. And I'm just like, ah. Oh. And there's a photo that Mary Lausman took of my face shortly after that photo. And I'm just, you can tell I, I just reverted in age to an eight-year-old kid. Just go, yeah, this is excellent. The facility in Houston is mounted horizontally. So when you come in, you are sort of disoriented because it's like, whoa, hang on, this is not uh, up and down. This is sideways. And they've got a figure. I think it's uh, it's Jack Laus. No, sorry, Jack is in the shower. It's uh, Joe Kerwin that's doing the spinning. Uh, it's like a, it's a dummy figure, but he's uh, spinning, doing somersaults. And you get to see just uh, it is spacious. Uh, but there's a lot of thought in how things were stored on there, how things were located. You had the ward room. So you, when you come in from the top, if you were coming in from where the command module had docked and you come through the uh, through the entry, the first place you're in is the multiple docking adapter. And it's called that because several vehicles could have docked to that at the same time. You go through that and you pass the uh, ATM control panel, which is the big desk that had all the uh, camera equipment and so forth controls for the observation uh, uh, telescope that was mounted on top of Skylab. That's at the top. Where, when you see the windmill shape, the circular thing in the middle is the ATM. Right. Uh, they had visible light. They had ultraviolet infrared so forth they did all these observations of the sun they they also did observations of um, of our galaxy the universe whatever whatever they could point the telescopes at whatever the experimenters decided emily you might have to help me with this well, what do you see after you pass through then you're in the uh in the exercise area isn't it no no you're in the wardroom no i think they're all sort of uh i think they're all sort of connected like uh, there's the orbital workshop, and then you go down, and there's then there's like the uh, the wardroom, the exercise area. Like I think that's on the same floor. I think yeah. it is on the same floor. Yeah, the wardroom, the exercise area, the uh, and then you got the uh, sleep compartments. That's right. That's right. And then you had the ring locker uh, separating everything, and that's where, where you yep. see the video where they're running around in circles. They did that on the ring lockers, and and they were yep. lockers that that they stored equipment and, and so forth in, uh, located around the inside of the workshop. Uh, down in the wardroom floor, you had the uh, the kitchen and the the eating room, uh, which was like a little. Um, futuristic looking table there was a beautiful window all the astronauts said they spent a lot of time just sitting there and looking out the window um and like paul white said in the in the film you know he never got tired of looking out the window you know he just looked down and there were no boundary lines it's just all part of this one big blue and green ball hmm. then they had the sleeping quarters uh there's the well-known story that albine didn't like sleeping head to toe. He was toe to head. He was actually essentially upside down uh, because of the ventilation was, was annoying him. Ed was telling me he preferred just floating around, uh, staying close to the to the command module, uh, just to have the peace and quiet because there was a lot of lot of sound going along on with all the equipment running down there. Uh, they had the ergometer, which is like a, a exercise bike. They had the lower body negative pressure device, and that was an experiment 
to observe how the blood flow could be maintained in in the body given the fact that they were in zero g for such a long time and there is a beautiful film done in 1977 with Nichelle Nichols from from Star Trek fame and she is actually in that thing and Alan Bean is explaining to her how the thing works lovely video um, yeah. sadly both of them are no longer with us as we are talking today you have just gotten back from Florida where you were at this year's Astronaut Hall of Fame induction, and there was a Skylab element to the event this year, if I'm correct. Uh, so how was it? <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, my wife and I, who was uh, my wife, Alexandra, was the producer of the film. We decided to co-sponsor the event. I oh, thought, wow. well, I know I've got the footage. You can see a couple of, well, you can't see it. You can take my word for it that there are canisters of film behind me from Skylab. And I thought, yeah, I'll save these guys a whole heap of headache. I'll do the videos for them and do the audio material should they need it. And we did the opening video for them. It was a panel with Bob Crippen, Rusty Swikert, Jack Lausner, and Joe Kerwin. Wow. It was a dinner panel evening. It was beautiful hearing stories from all of them. It was just fantastic. And, um, to be a part of that and to be around the the people. And I must say the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation is a fantastic organization. Um, Sabrina, Lacey, Danielle, and all the others that helped us. Uh, there's so many names. I, I would be here for two hours if I rattled off uh, the names of people that helped us. Uh, we were around people of greatness and it, it rubs off. You, you just come out of there buzzing. A lot of, lot of interesting people in uh, Jeff Carr, who is the son of Jerry Carr, was also there. And I'm, I'm so happy I finally got the chance to meet him. Eve Garriott was also there. Uh, Joanna Kerwin, Joe's daughter, fabulous people. You know, and, and all of them, you know, I work in television and I'm around a lot of famous people and there are egos that go with that. And the one thing that strikes me with these astronauts and their families you have to force an ego out of them. They are so humble. Uh, they will give you the time of day. If you show you're interested, they have a lot of stories to tell you and they don't get sick of doing it. And they're so down to earth. They're normal people. We, we were literally having drinks with them. It's, it's, uh, it's a, it's just an indescribable um, feeling to be around these people. I, I do admit I did have a bit of imposter syndrome. I, I'm standing there going, what have I done to contribute to humanity? You know, I've got nothing compared to these people. And actually, they were the ones that are saying, what are you talking about? You've preserved our legacy. And I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe I have. So <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, frame of mind to be in. I think it's worth uh, reiterating that astronauts, I've read most of their books. They're not always the best people to tell their own stories. And, and having someone like yourself preserve this an outsider especially someone who who's who's not in that nasa bubble not in that bubble i think is so important uh, and and that movie is wonderful so don't yeah don't do yourself a disservice there at all what you've done is a wonderful wonderful Thank thing you. i must say it's not just me the, you know emily you've got this group that's been going since when 2011 14 yep yeah, right? uh, 2011 yeah you know we wouldn't have had half the support had that group not been there um we, we uh, I don't know if you know, Dave, we, we partially funded the film via Kickstarter. All the people that, that sponsored us there, you know, we couldn't have done it without them. Mm. They were crucial in, in the final stage. And I, I, it's been a rocky road. It, it was a tough one. We had highs and we had lows, and the lows were incredibly difficult to deal with. 
Uh, I mean, you know, we're watching right now the um, uh, Return to Space documentary about uh, Elon Musk. You watch him at the the very first launches of of the Falcon rocket in the very very beginning. And, you know, the media loves to present him as somebody who's uh, aloof and uh, you know difficult to work with. And I saw a human being there. You can see on the footage while this thing is launching and they don't know if it's going to be successful or not. He is pale in the face and he is hyperventilating. He is so stressed out. He had invested pretty much every single cent of his fortune into SpaceX. And if that Mm. rocket hadn't worked, that pretty much would have been the end of them. And uh, I'm like, why, why was I never shown this, you know, similar to Scott, why didn't I not see the experiments as a kid? It would have helped make my understanding of Elon a whole lot better. You know, watching film of people like this and hearing their stories, I think, you know, everyone who achieves anything goes through ups and downs. And Emily, I know you've you've gone through ups and downs as well. You've you've dealt with uh, weirdos contacting you or, you know, with, with weird stuff. It's like, you know, just let me get on with the job. It's a tough road. I will say this much. Um had you asked me a week ago, should I make a movie? I would have advised you strongly against it. After going there and seeing the the um, the, the welcome we got, uh, I've changed my mind. I say, if you strongly believe in it, and if you think it's something important and that has to be done, then do it and worry about what happens later because you will get through it. You have a support group of a whole lot of people that will f- follow you and, and help you. Uh, and get you through the bad times. Now, of course, you, you, you don't want to admit there are bad times, but uh, they do come and they do uh, bite you very nicely when they do. But then you have moments where you see the guys on stage and they look towards you and they just clap and you go, that's why I did it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, the artistic uh, dilemma is, is is always difficult no matter what you're doing, right? It, it's always battling demons and all kinds of stuff and self-doubt and all those kind of things. But but for you, the process of making Skylab, uh, searching for Skylab, in the end, ultimately, was worth it, right? Yes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, today, I, I will say yes. I've got a <laughs> what I like to call a Brian Wilson complex. I don't know if you know who Brian Wilson is, the, the founder of the Beach yeah. Boys. Uh, when he was working on Good Vibrations, it was never good enough, right? And... Uh, it's the same with me with the film, you know. I look at it and I see every single mistake. Of course, yeah. Uh, and then I see a bit of footage and I go, well, I've just found this other bit of footage and it's better quality, so I'll put it in there. Now, I have a version that uh, is the most up-to-date and I've found new uh, Smeet footage, so that's in there. In essence, the film is exactly the same, but I will always be tinkering with it. And that <laughs> is the, uh, the, the penalty of being a, a director of a film. You'll never be happy with it. I fully understand George Lucas. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's exactly the same no matter what you're doing with this podcast, when I'm writing songs, whatever it is, I have the same same thing. You could listen back and you hear mistakes and no, no one hears uh, and see things that no one sees and you, you'll always be doubting yourself. Is it finished? Is it finished? And sometimes the deadline creates it is, is what makes it finish, not anything else. It's just that that's it. There's the time. Now it's finished. Oh, I, I got to tell you, when uh, we, we did the sneak peek at Space Fest in 2017, I think it was 20, no, 2018, sorry. And uh, we had a deadline. There was a, a competition called the Coombs Gates Award, and that was two weeks before Space Fest. So I had to have the film finished in order for it to be eligible to enroll into the competition. 
<laughs> Thank God I'm a shift worker because <laughs> my wife and I stayed up until 6.30 in the morning that day, which ended up being half past midnight in the US for the for the time, the, the deadline for, for uploading the film. And I I was editing the film. Uh, seriously, you hear these stories and you go, that can't be true. You know, what a load. Uh, he, he was not editing it till the 11th hour. Yes, he was. Um, I was uploading segments of the film as uh, zip files in order to meet the deadline to, to make sure it got up there. And of course, the battery on the computer that keeps the time and so forth, that decided to die that very oh, day. No. So. It overheated. It shut down. I couldn't start the thing. Oh, you, you know, I was crying blood. Um, <laughs> and then with five minutes to spare, we uploaded the final segment for, for the competition. And wow. with that, we also had it ready for Space Fest. So, and I've got to tell you this story too. This is, uh, <laughs> Emily will remember because we were in such a panic at the, uh, at the screening. I had six backups. Blu-ray, DVD, Blu-ray, <laughs> um, 23 fr or 24 frames a second, Blu-ray, 30 frames a second in the NTSC format, in case, DVD, same situation. And then as we're walking out of the house, I had a, a memory stick with the film on it in MPEG-4 format. And I thought, just take it, just in case, right? We get to Space Vest. It was early in the morning. I think it was uh, like, 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock, you know, and before you knew it, we woke up, we, uh, we got the crew together. We had breakfast. We go into the hall, put the, the Blu-ray into the disc player and it says disc, not readable. Oh going, my God. That's not a problem. I've got a backup. I put the backup in there. Disc, not readable. I, I go, okay, Blu-ray's not working. We'll do it standard def. We'll put the, the DVD in disc, not readable. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> we, we had to we had to borrow at first i think emily we used your computer and then we used my wife's or i can't remember how it went and i plugged that mpeg4 in that memory stick and that was the thing we played and i thought oh i do not want to know what would have happened had we not uh had i not grabbed that that stick as we're walking out the door amazing when when we did the premiere in australia at esperance and this is another place where if you can get to i if you're interested in skylab Esperance is a fantastic place to visit because there's the the hallowed grounds of the the resting place of Skylab, most beautiful area you can imagine for the for this space station to have as a resting place. And we went to the Civic uh, Center, which where where they played the film at. Again, I had fifty million backups, and of course, come screening night, and the place is full with with all the visitors to watch the film and the. Blu-ray won't start. And they're all panicking and I'm going, it's a good omen. It's a good omen. It will play. It's just <laughs> going to take time. And it, it played and thankfully it, uh, it all worked. So uh, we're used to the ups and downs. Oh man. And uh, you know, I will say, dear God, we've had enough downs. A couple of ups would be good now, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's very much in the spirit of Skylab to have started slightly wrong anyway, right? And then being fixed. So uh, that's always good. Yes, thank you. Now, you're probably going to ask, where can you see the film? Oh, absolutely. Where can we see the film? Well, the film is available on Vimeo if you want to uh, download it or stream it. Um, you can order it straight from us at uh, www.searchingforskylab.com. And I'm happy to report after our visit to Florida, the American Space Museum is the only place outside of us that now has the article for sale. So if you want the film 
the American Space Museum has it. They're a great place to visit. I really support what they're doing. The staff there are fantastic. Go visit. They've got artifacts there that uh, my chin was just, you know, on the on the floor looking yeah, at it going, right. are you what? I have this? Wow. <laughs> and it's right next to uh, to the launch facility. Well, right next in, in uh, American-Australian terms, uh, <laughs> which means a drive for about 20 minutes. And there's one other cool thing that's happening. At the Fuge in Warminster, Pennsylvania, Eleanor Arrangers is organizing a special screening of Searching for Skylab on May 13th. So it's very, very soon at 11 a.m., but between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. Um, you get to see the film. It's a special cut. I've added a couple of extra cool scenes from Smeet and uh, of Dr. Kahutek that I've located, uh, much better quality than uh, than what was originally in the film. And we'd love to see you there. $10 per ticket. And it's for the Southeastern Pennsylvania Cold War Historical Society. So you're helping a good thing there. They're preserving history. So we'd love to see you there. I'm going to be doing a QA. Um, and so you get to hear the same stories that I've just told you now. But anyway, <laughs> um, we'd love to see you there. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and find a link and make sure that's in the show notes as well. So uh, yeah, hopefully people can get down to that. All right. So final question. Uh, we've got nearly a full year of Skylab 50th anniversary events and 50th anniversary tributes coming up. So what do you think is the legacy of Skylab? The legacy of Skylab is how to deal with long-term living in space. I love the quote from David Hitt that says, Skylab is the first time that orbit became a destination. Every mission before that was going to the moon, going with uh, you know, a rocket somewhere and to, to land on it. With Skylab orbiting, the Earth was the destination, and it taught so much. Uh, what what blew us away? We went to the STEC Open Day uh, about eight years ago in in the Netherlands. And the astronauts there were telling us that uh, they use Skylab information to help plan their ISS missions. And they said the only trouble is there is so much data. We have not got enough scientists to decipher the information. We have not gone through 40% of the information that we need to that has been collected from Skylab. Amazing. This is so cool. Dwight, this has been an amazing interview. Thank you so much. Uh, for joining us today and, and telling us a bit about how the movie got made and, and giving us some more information on Skylab. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, we will put in the show notes links to the movie where people can find it. I know you mentioned them already, but we'll make sure that if people uh, can't remember those, they can just click on the links and, and come and f come and find your movie, which I've got the DVD of. And I love it. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, worth buying, absolutely worth buying and, and watching this movie. It's phenomenal. So thank you very much for joining us. And uh, hopefully we'll speak to you again thank at some you. point. Pleasure. Thank you. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Skylab. This is Space and Things. Dwight's just lovely, isn't he? What a lovely guy. I really enjoyed spending time with Dwight. What a lovely guy. So I have I have thoughts about this this movie. Um one I think it's amazing. But but I think and this is going to come up I think a few times over the next few weeks. Is Skylab is historically greatly underappreciated and unrecognized. And obviously Al Bean and Pete Conrad, two of the guys that flew on Skylab, walked on the moon. So they they get a fair amount of uh, of love because they were Apollo moon astronauts. But the other seven guys, yeah. they're people that who aren't particularly well-known. 
even in space flight loving communities you know a lot of people may have to look up their names or who are the crew of, of Skylab 4 and yet this movie and other books that we will I'm sure talk about over the next few weeks absolutely give them a voice and tell their story and that is so important not just for them but for their families and we have to sometimes remember that the people that did these things are human you know and they're getting old and some of them aren't here anymore and so for their story to be told in such an amazing way is so important and hopefully that this whole Skylab 50th anniversary will put it in the spotlight as it deserves to be and allow these people's stories to be told and, and allow the families to to feel like the sacrifices they all made, the sacrifices that, that, that were made for Spaceflight, for Skylab, back when, when they had young kids and all this kind of stuff, was worth it because it got remembered. And, and remembered for because it was an incredible period of time when lots was learned and things that happen now wouldn't be happening. Well, they may have been happening, but we may not have got there without Skylab in the same time frame. We, we learned so much from it. It was so important to the history of, of spaceflight. And, and I love that, that interview so much. So Dwight, great job with the movie. Great job with that interview. And thank you just for reminding us with the course of this movie that these people were human and that, they're important. They're important humans as well. They did something big. They did something special. Yeah, and they and they absolutely deserve credit for what they did, you know. And like you said, you know, the other seven guys who flew on Skylab, you know, weren't household names at all. And there's actually mm. a great article uh, from the New York Times in 1974, uh, written by Molly Ivins, I think, and it's a uh, it's called Ed Who. <laughs> And it's about oh. it's about Ed Gibson, but it's really a good article, and it's it's really about you know how about ten years earlier, you know, people like John Glenn were like household celebrities, you know, like I mean, just just the biggest, yeah. you know, in the in the magazines all the time, and you know, ten years later, you had somebody like Ed Gibson who flew for in space for a substantially longer amount of time than and than John Glenn. And you never heard about him, you know, he, he, he was just, yeah, he went to space and it's like, you know, what had happened between then and 1974, but the article is excellent uh, and it, it's really because it, it really showcases Ed and his, and his, and Julie, his wife. It's a wonderful article, but, but it kind of sums up the whole, you know, atmosphere around Skylab that, okay, these guys weren't household names, but maybe they should be more well-known for the sacrifices they made. I mean, going to space for, God, as long as they did back then, I mean, that was a tremendous amount of just not personal sacrifice, but physical sacrifice as well. I mean, 28, 50, 59, 84 days, that's a long time, you know? I mean, to yeah. go to space. When you look at the workouts that the astronauts do on the ISS now every day to make sure their bodies are in good shape when they get back, and although they did have the bike and, uh, and other experiments and, and things up there on Skylab, the fitness regime wasn't in place to make sure, because it wasn't known what would happen. The yeah. full extent of what happens wasn't known. So yeah, yeah you're, you're absolutely right. It's that, that personal toll on your body and, and the perhaps long-term implication of that weren't known at the time either. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they were just discovering all this back then because, you know, the lunar missions, they went to space, but that wasn't meant to really 
figure out what happened to the human body in space. It was to, okay, we're going to go to the moon, and maybe for the last few missions we'll do a little bit of science there. Whereas Skylab was basically the first time where they were figuring out, okay, this is what happens to people four, six, eight weeks in space. You know, and there were other medical experiments that were um, not particularly dignified. Um, uh, There's a, I will never post this as long as I'm alive. There's a whole series of uh, pictures of Ed Gibson in his underwear having to be photographed before Skylab. And then they did draw or not drawings, but they did photographs during the mission to figure out how much like muscle mass did he lose. Imagine having to be photographed in your underwear for like a space mission. I'm not doing that, you know, but but they had to do that to figure out how their body's going to change in space. You know what what happened to the human body in space, you know, structurally and stuff like that. Again, it's that that whole thing about these were human beings, but they were also medical experiments themselves. Yes, they were guinea pigs. I can't imagine putting yourself through that. But at the same time, I, I would have done the same, I think, at, at the time. Emily, I got a question for you. It's it's Skylab's 50th anniversary. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. It's really wonderful to see all the love the program is getting. Um, I don't even think 10 years ago it was getting as much love as it is now because back then, and I could be totally wrong, uh, back then I think the only event was that um, the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation had a 40th anniversary event which was awesome. It was it was wonderful, and I, I actually attended that. But, um, you know, I don't recall there being any other commemorations or events back then. And there could have been some. If there were, uh, you know, and I'm missing them, I apologize. Mm-hmm. I just don't remember them because uh, it's been 10 years. But I'm seeing now a lot of different museums are doing uh, commemorations, tributes, uh, people are sharing their stories on on different forums like Collect Space and and Space Hipsters and stuff like that. It's really wonderful to see the the program really getting a lot of attention that it hasn't. It just hasn't gotten, and I just think it's wonderful that you know the the guys from the mission are finally getting really the attention they deserve for have you know like we said for going through all the stuff that they went through. Mm. I'm very happy. Uh, next week I am headed to uh, Kansas. Uh, where David Hitt, me, Milt Windler, and Jack Lausma, uh, and John Molnix, nice group of people there. We're going to talk about uh, Skylab. So I'm yeah. very, I'm very excited. So I think uh, I'm feeling great. I think this is going to be awesome, and it's wonderful to see this incredible program getting the love that it finally deserves. Absolutely. Right. Uh, you, you can watch the full unedited interview with Dwight on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash space and things and as always in the show notes will be links to dwight and that movie make sure you go and check it out if you do one thing to celebrate the 50th anniversary of skylab make sure it's watching that movie you will not regret it in our houston skylab 2 we fix anything we got a pitch and a roll program so emily what's caught your eye in space flight since last week Virgin Galactic has announced that after, God, almost two years or over two years, I think, um, that it has, it has a crew that's going to return to space. I think it, it they're planning on doing it at the conclusion of uh, June as, mm-hmm. as of this time, but it is the Unity 25 crew. Uh, they'll be launching on, of course, they'll be flying the uh, VSS Unity, but the crew is Beth Moses, who... I believe this will be her third space flight. Uh, Luke Mays, Jamila Gilbert, and Christopher, I hope I'm saying his name right, uh, Huey. 
So they will be flying to space aboard uh, the, uh, I think it's the VSS Unity. Uh, the crew of the uh, Unity is Mike Masucci, is the commander, and CJ Sturkow. Uh, space Shuttle, a former Space Shuttle flyer, is oh, the wow. uh, pilot. So, yeah, I, I think they're in pretty good hands. I think they're in pretty capable hands. You got somebody who uh, helped uh, fly the space shuttle. Uh, that's about as good as you can get. And um, on the VMS Eve, which I believe is the carrier ship, it is the uh, the commander is Jamil uh, Janjua. I hope I'm saying his name right. And uh, Nicola Pasil. So they are the uh, carrier pilot uh, on the or the carrier airplane pilot and commander or commander and pilot respectively yeah so if you go to the website i think it's virgin galactic uh and there's a sort of a press releasey thing there um it shows the uh trajectory of the mission how the flight profile will look but yeah that's really interesting i know they haven't flown in a couple of years i know um after their last flight they had some uh issues with the faa just because uh i think the flight had uh, some trajectory differences from I, I I think they had trajectory differences from what it should have been so um it's kind of been interesting to follow but um and the last flight of course was the one that carried Richard Branson to space of course yeah yeah that seems like so long ago it seems like way further back than it was I think it was yeah. just two I think it was two years ago mm. but um it seems like it was God, ages ago but yeah, so they're going to fly again. I believe uh, it is scheduled for next or for the for late June, and I think they've already done some glide tests. So, yep, they're gearing up for that. So, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, best of luck to Virgin Galactic. I will be watching. Uh, I think these are very exciting. Absolutely. So, Dave, what has caught your eye this week? What have you been looking at? Well, I will put a link to an article and maybe a video of the Blue Shift Aerospace uh, engine test. This is a company which we've followed for a while now. Uh, I'm a big fan of what they're trying to do. They're doing biofueled powered rockets uh, up in Maine in New England, uh, the, the northeast of America. And I think what these guys are doing is amazing. So they, they had a big engine test last Wednesday, and uh, I'll put this, put some information about that up because that definitely caught my eye. But unfortunately, two bits of sad news, and, and I saw, Emily, you post about this. Uh, Samuel Durrance, the astronaut, um, died at the age of 79. I don't know if you have something you'd like to say about him because I yes. saw your post. Thank you. Yeah, he uh, flew on two uh, uh, missions during the space shuttle missions during the 90s, uh, Astro 1 and Astro 2. I believe the first one took place aboard Columbia and the, I think the second one took place aboard Endeavor. I could be wrong. He was actually a payload specialist, but um, to me that doesn't really matter because if you're if you've been in Earth orbit, to me, you're an astronaut. Same, yeah. But uh, yeah, he flew in Astro One and Astro Two. He was in a he was a big time astronomer, very accomplished. And um, he uh, Astro One and Astro Two were basically like these portable observatories that they flew on the shuttle. Um, and if you look at the images, it's really incredible. It's basically like a, a telescope aboard the space shuttle, which is awesome. In lieu of flowers. Uh, the family is asking for people to donate to the Astro um, preserve, basically to preserve some of the hardware. I think from those missions. 
So uh, that's what the family oh, is. A- yeah, the family is asking for uh, preservation of some of the mission. Uh, I think some of the mission hardware. I believe it's at the U.S. and Space Rocket Center in Huntsville. So if you look on the American Space Museum Facebook page or uh, or Space Hipsters, uh, I think I posted it. Um, there is information how you can contribute to that if you are interested. And that's something great you can contribute to uh, Sam Durance's memory. But yeah, really sad loss. Uh, he was a big deal in astronomy. He really was. He was still very active up until his final years in that field and, and educating uh, students about, you know, space flight and space flight careers. So he was definitely really active. Um, and it's just it's just very sad. And our condolences to his uh, family and his friends. Yeah, absolutely. And, and while we're talking about people passing and and this one may seem a little bit odd to, to bring up at this point, but um I've been informed by by one of our patrons, Toby Jeffries, um, about the passing of Christopher Fowler. Now, that's a name which I'm sure many people won't have heard of. But this is a guy who did a lot of stuff behind the scenes for, for films and stuff like that, including coming up with taglines. And it feels like we should definitely honor, honor Christopher Fowler because he came up with a tagline for Alien in space. No one can hear you. Uh, scream and of course we use a modified version of that at the end of every every episode of our podcast so unfortunately the guy who came up with that christopher fowler has passed away uh, far too young in my opinion but he also did a lot of other things as well and as uh, toby sent me a very uh, very good obituary which i will put in the show notes because i think it's something that that people should uh, should read because this guy is amazing and has got a wonderful story about his life uh, one other, very quickly, you mentioned about hardware not being preserved and the, the launch platform that was used for Apollo 11, uh, all three of the crewed Skylab flights and Apollo Soyuz and 33 space shuttle missions is about to be destroyed, which is a real sad, the, the mobile wow. launch platform. They're, they've run out of space at Kennedy Space Center. I wow. don't know how a, an area that big runs out of space, but apparently they've run out of space to store store this thing. So it's it's being destroyed. And that that I find very sad. I'm hoping they can repurpose some pieces from the... Uh... I think they have. Okay, cool. There's, there's certain bits. There's an article again. I'll put the link, the link to the article in the show, show notes. It was written by uh, Robert Perlman. Okay, and, great. Uh, and he said there's certain bits that have been, been pulled, pulled out for being repurposed. But yeah. the, the main structure will uh, unfortunately be destroyed. Yeah, I think parts of MLP2 were made into like sort of paperweights and I have one of them. Yeah, I I'd, I'd buy one. That's for sure. I mean, this is this is big history, isn't it? Bear in mind that people uh buy tiny little pieces of of caption foil uh from a from Apollo spacecraft and tiny bits of heat shield. I think people would definitely want to buy a a piece of these structures which we see in all the photos and and were such an integral part of launching our favorite missions. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Space and Things Podcast. Launching from your favorite podcast platform every Thursday. Right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. We've got more to bring you on Skylab over the next few weeks. I hope this has left you wanting more. Thanks to all those who are part of our Patreon page. The winner of the book draw this month was Gillian Cassie. Congratulations, Gillian. You've won a copy of Homestead in Space, The Skylab Story, which is the ultimate book about Skylab. Anyway, if you want to be a part of this, uh, there's plenty more going on over there. Head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things. 
And a big thank you to Louis. It might be Louis. I'm not sure how to pronounce your name. It's Louis or Louis. Uh, one of our patrons who has provided us with our stings this week. Amazing job. I love your Southern American accent. Absolutely amazing. And thanks to all who continue to share this podcast with your space-loving friends. Every time you do, that gives us a nice little boost. So thank you, but don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean. Thanks for listening to the Space and Things podcast. Back next Thursday with a brand new episode.